If you would, open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As we begin to study again this wonderful passage, prepares our heart for the glories that we just sang of. There's no fear more common to humanity than the fear of death. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, death has been an unavoidable and inevitable reality for every human being. To see that, human beings uh, still fear death, and we need to look no further than the fact that the anti-aging industry is a booming industry. The anti-aging industry, of course, is dedicated to technological research that will help improve or extend human life. That goal, of course, in and of itself is not ignoble or sinful or wrong, but as we look deeper into that industry, it is incredibly telling. According to a research website called Statista, in 2020, the anti-aging industry was valued at $58.5 billion and is projected to reach $88.3 billion by the year 2026. Companies are offering a host of anti-aging products, including creams and supplements, surgical procedures, blood transfusions, and one company is even researching aging at the cellular level, trying to find a way to manipulate the cells in our bodies to think and respond like young cells instead of older cells. The reality is, as God in his common grace has made us in the image of God, he may allow us to to come across some medical advancement or technological advancement that does legitimately extend human life to some degree. After all, before the flood, human beings used to live hundreds of years. It's not that it's impossible for mankind to live longer than we currently do. It's not even wrong to desire a long and healthy life. But all of these products and industries and Advancements at the end of the day only serve to further underscore the harsh reality that stares all of us in the face, and that is that death is inevitable. No matter how long technology or medicinal advancements extend human life expectancy, they will never find the true fountain of youth. They will never reach the ultimate goal of immortality. And that, of course, is because death is not the product of evolution. It's the punishment of God for sin. But while there is no real good news available to us from a fallen world on the issue of death, the Bible gives us exceedingly good news about our relationship with death. While it's true that Christians are not given a pass on experiencing physical death, God does provide real freedom from the power and fear of death in Christ. And in our text today, we'll discover that the suffering of Christ on the cross was intended to dramatically alter every believer's understanding of death. You'll remember the overarching theme of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. Specifically, for several weeks now, we've been looking at the fact that Christ is superior to the angels. We've seen nine specific proofs of that fact from the author of Hebrews, and we're now dealing with the ninth of those, that Jesus is the better Adam, and we'll be dealing for this, with this yet for a few more weeks. We've seen that he is our representative in his humiliation, in his exaltation and substitution. And now we continue to study together, specifically verses 10 through 15. Today, verses 14 and 15, but for the sake of context, let's read together 
Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, all the way through 15. The author writes, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now so far in this section we've seen this great declaration that Christ's suffering was fitting. This was in verse 10. It was right, it was appropriate for the Father to, to crush the Son through suffering to bring many sons to glory. But now we're looking at several reasons that the author gives as to why it was so right, so fitting. We've already seen reason number one, which is that we are a spiritual family. That was verses 11 and 13. The two implications of that fact that we're a spiritual family are that God is our Father. We saw there in verse 11 that Jesus is our sanctifier and we are the sanctified and we share with Christ God as our Father. But then last week in verses 12 and 13 we saw not only is God our Father but Christ is our brother. Astonishingly, the author told us that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. In fact, he freely laid down his life to purchase us, and then he personally committed himself to sanctifying us. Jesus Christ will make us what we have to be, what we must be, in order to be with him forever. He will bring us to glory, glorified and perfectly holy. The author proved the fact that it's always been this, this way in the mind of God. He's always thought of us as brothers by quoting three Old Testament passages he quoted first from Psalm 22, verse 22, and then secondly from Isaiah 8, verse 17, and finally Isaiah 8, verse 18. We don't have time to go back through those, but that recording is there from last week if you would like to catch up with us. But now beginning in verse 14, where we'll land today, we turn our attention to a second reason. A second reason why it was so fitting for the Father to bring us to glory through the suffering of Christ. With that context in mind, that second reason is this. It's that through his suffering, he freed us from slavery to Satan and death. He freed us from slavery to Satan and death, verses 14 and 15. Now, just like the last reason broke down into two section, sections, this one breaks down into two parts as well. The first part that we'll see together is Christ's provision. Christ's provision in the first part of verse 14. Look back at Hebrews 2.14. He begins, as he often does, with the word, therefore. Therefore connects this then to the larger argument that he's been making since verse 10, as well as the most immediate thing that he just said in verse 13. Remember, the last 
quote there in verse 13, right at the end, he says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. He's playing off of this idea that we are the children of God. And so he says, Therefore, since the children, verse 14, Therefore, since the children. The children here refer to the redeemed all those that would be redeemed in Christ. It's not a reference to humanity in general, but specifically to the redeemed. They are the children of God. And the author's going to draw an important principle here. He's going to tell us something about these children that's very important when it relates to what Christ did for us. The children, he says, share in flesh and blood. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. That word share is referring to this shared reality that's common between every believer. It's common between all human beings, but specifically this reality that we have that we share in flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is just a way of saying humanity. We have physical bodies with blood flowing through our veins. We have a human nature. We are truly, fully human beings. This phrase is used throughout Scripture, flesh and blood, simply to mean humanity, we see it in Matthew 16 when Peter makes his great confession. In Matthew 16, verse 15, he, that is Jesus, said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because, here's our phrase, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's the point that Jesus is making? He's saying humanity, human beings, did not reveal this to you, but God revealed this to you. So flesh and blood is simply a way to say that we are truly human beings with a human nature and a full human body. Every single redeemed saint shares this reality. Now, it's important that we understand the verb tense that the author uses for this verb Share, And it's because he's going to make a point with this word up against the word he's going to use to describe Jesus Christ. This word share is a perfect active indicative. It, it, the idea here is that this has always been the reality for us as human beings. We've never known anything but a human nature. It's an ongoing shared reality. We have flesh and blood. We have a human nature. This is how it has always been. But that is not how it has always been for the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to get to in a moment. Now, he draws upon this idea of the humanity that we share to make a very specific point now about Jesus Christ. So, since or because all the children share in humanity, he now says, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He himself also, or likewise also, partook of the same. Now, this is a mind-blowing, life-altering statement. Every single word that I just read is crucial to our understanding of this passage. If we're going to have a right theological understanding of the doctrine of the incarnation, of God becoming flesh, taking on humanity, we have to understand each one of these words. First of all, notice the emphasis. He himself. Notice the repetition. He's pointing specifically to this person 
Who is this he? Who does the pronoun refer to? Well, in context, it can be none other than the sanctifier, the the son of God. None other than Jesus Christ, who is none other than eternal God himself. To understand the magnitude of what the author is saying to us, we have to remind ourselves of what he's already told us about who this Jesus Christ is. Remember, he began back in chapter 1 with this glorious, beautiful description of the divinity of Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This Jesus, the sanctifier, The very divine Son of God is the heir and creator of all things, who perfectly radiates the glory of God, who shares the very essence and nature of God. Jesus has a completely divine nature. That is, everything that's essential to the character and nature of God the Father is also shared and possessed by God the Son. He is God through and through, and he's been God from eternity past. There's never been a time that he wasn't God. In fact, not only is Jesus Christ the creator of all things, but the author says that all things are upheld by him. He sustains all things. Every molecule in the universe obeys the will of the Son to bring about God's ultimate sovereign plan for the universe. And so now we understand the, the importance of this emphasis, he himself, that one, that amazing divine Son of God, that one partook. He partook. Let's look at the verb there. He himself partook. We'll look at the verb first, and then we'll look at the words that modify that verb. As I told you, he uses a different verb tense for this verb than the one he used for human beings or the redeemed. Partook is in the aorist tense. The aorist tense is used for a one-time action, a completed action that took place at a certain point in history. The idea here is that while we as the redeemed have always shared humanity, it's all we've ever known, not so for the perfect son, for the only begotten son. He chose to, on purpose, partake at a certain point in history of humanity. He added to his divine nature a fully, truly human nature at a certain point in time. And he did it on purpose. From eternity past, he has existed as eternal God, but now, at a certain point in time, he adds to that divine nature a full human nature. He partook. But notice the two descriptions of exactly what he partook of. Look back at the text. It says, he himself likewise also partook of the same. There's two key words there, likewise and the phrase of the same. Likewise means in the same manner or in the same way. 
And then secondly, that phrase of the same just points us back to what it was the children shared in. And what did the children share in? Perfect or full humanity. Not perfect, but full, complete, real humanity. So when it says that he partook, what it's saying is that when Jesus was incarnate, it was real, real humanity. It was not a higher form of humanity. It didn't just appear to be humanity. It wasn't a facade. He became a real, breathing, uh, cut me and I bleed human being. Real body, real blood, real human nature. In fact, Jesus Christ became in his humanity everything that you and I are except for sin. Everything that you are as a human being, he took to himself except for sin. Just think about the implications of that. Let that sit with you for just a moment. Our human bodies are by nature dependent on several things. We're dependent on air, food, water, clothing, shelter. And we're all dependent upon the goodness of God to provide these things that are so necessary for life. We get tired, our bodies get injured, they get sick. He himself partook. He became everything that we are except for our sin. And he did all of this while maintaining perfectly at the same time a full, true, divine nature. Without ceasing to be God, he added to himself humanity. The reason I'm pressing this point so hard is there is an ancient heresy called docetism that the Gnostics held during the early church that Jesus, they didn't want to denigrate his, his deity by adding humanity. So they said he just sort of looked human. It was just kind of a facade. It, just, it was an illusion. No, the author of Hebrews couldn't be more clear. He himself likewise also partook of the same. How else can you say that other than to say he became a real human being? And, and the, the reason that matters is because he had to. Listen, if Jesus wasn't a real human being with a real beating heart and blood flowing through his veins, then he could not be your savior. He had to be a real, living, breathing human being. And that's exactly what he was. But the question remains, why? Why did this wonderful, glorious, eternal God choose to partake of humanity? Well, the first clue comes to us in the very first phrase we read in verse 14. Remember how the verse begins. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. There's a connection point here to these adopted children of God set apart in eternity past. Because the children shared in flesh and blood, this became the motivation, the reason why Jesus had to also partake of the same. That's the first clue But now he goes on to express it even more clearly. And this is part number two of this second reason as to why it was fitting for the Father to bring us to glory through the suffering of the Son. Part two is Christ's purpose. We've already seen his provision. Now we see Christ's purpose. The author begins the second portion of his argument with a sobering and shocking statement 
We've already read, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And now he says, that through death. That through death. Immediately, after explaining that Jesus willingly chose to take on full humanity, he references not his life, but his death. This is a shocking and yet necessary reminder that the necessity of the incarnation was not simply for Jesus to live as a man, though that was crucial, but it was that he die as a man. Jesus came from the beginning to die. And now we see the connection point back to verse 10, the fact that it was fitting for the Father to to cause him to suffer, to bring us to glory. This was always the Father's plan from eternity past, that the Son would take on flesh, live a perfect life, but ultimately the end of that would be to offer that life as a sacrifice in death. This is clear even from the annunciation of his birth. Remember Luke chapter 2? The angels come to the shepherds in the field, and what do they say? Verse 10, the angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there is born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This announcement of a Savior implies his death, even at his birth, that he came to save. But that becomes even more clear from the words of Jesus himself. Remember John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Skipping to verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. How many times can he say it? I've come to lay down my life for the sheep. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And finally, in Acts chapter 2, is Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, looking back now at the cross and the resurrection. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, listen to this, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He says this was the predetermined plan of God, that the Son of God would take to himself full humanity for the express purpose of dying, to die as a substitute. Take note in our text of the word since and the word that. Notice the connection. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death. Because we had this humanity, he took to himself humanity so that he could offer that humanity in the place of the children. 
It's a beautiful testimony to the fact that Jesus came from the beginning on a rescue mission. He came as a savior, determined by the predetermined will of God in eternity past to be our substitute. Just think about that for a moment, Christian. Jesus humbled himself on purpose, took on flesh, submitted to death because he was committed for the glory of God to fulfill the divine purpose of redemption of God to bring you as a child of God to the Father by offering his life for you. All we can say to that is glory be to God in the highest place. Amen. That God would do such a thing for sinners as lowly as us and yet it's true. It's real. But what exactly did Jesus accomplish by dying as a substitute in the place of these children? Obviously, the answer to that question is multifaceted. In fact, in many ways, we'll spend the rest of Hebrews dissecting that idea. What, what did he accomplish? He accomplished a lot. Obviously, he accomplished our redemption. But specifically here in this text, in these verses, the author hones in on two specific things that Jesus accomplished, two purposes for which he died for us as people. The first purpose is the defeat of Satan. The defeat of Satan. Look back at the text, verse 14. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The first purpose mentioned here of the death of Christ is the defeat of the great enemy of God, Satan. Specifically, the author says that by the death of Christ, Satan was rendered powerless. Now, let me explain that he doesn't mean that Satan no longer is operative in the world, he, or that he's not still sowing discord and seeking to thwart the plans of God. In context, remember, he's talking in relationship to the children, to the redeemed of God. And so when he says that, they've, that Satan's been rendered powerless, he means in relation to the children of God. And specifically, he mentions one aspect of Satan's power that has been eradicated through the cross, and it's the power of death. Look back at the text, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Now, to make sure we don't misunderstand this, this is one of those times in Scripture where it's important for us to talk about what something does not mean before we talk about what it means. And so let me be clear about what he's not saying when he says he rendered powerless the one who had the power of death. Because many Christians, unfortunately, have a faulty understanding of the relationship between God and Satan. They see Satan as one whose power is just only barely slightly less than God. And they act as if Satan has the power to legitimately thwart God's plans. They would say that God wins in the end, but the battle from this perspective is that Satan uh, does something to thwart God, and then God responds, and then Satan responds, and then God responds, and they're sort of in this fist-to-fist spiritual combat. This is a very popular view of Satan, particularly among false teachers in the prosperity gospel movement, where they believe that everything bad in the world is done by Satan, everything good in the world is done by God, and so there is this constant battle between the two, which God will just barely eke out in the end. 
The problem with that is it's not at all what the Bible says about how God relates to Satan. Though Satan is much more powerful than we are, his power is nothing. It is minuscule in comparison to the power of the one true God. There is only one omnipotent being in the universe, omnipresent, um, all-powerful being. It is God himself. Satan cannot touch the power of God. And I say that to you standing on one particular text in Job. You remember in Job chapter 1, we have this introduction that explains what's happening in the spiritual background behind the human events that take place in Job's life. Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's a reference to angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now listen to verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now it's very interesting. The rest of the book of Job recounts how Satan does in fact torment Job. He takes the life of many of his family members, his children. He takes all of his possessions. But what's interesting is Satan never goes one inch further than the fence that God puts up. God says, you can do this, but don't you dare cross here. And guess what Satan does? Yes, sir. That's what he does. Because God is the all-powerful God of the universe. Now, that understanding is really crucial for us as we think about what's being said here when the author of Hebrews says that, that Satan has the power of death because he's not insinuating that God has delegated to Satan full and complete power over death in the sense that Satan gets to decide who dies and when they die and how they die. It is God who has sovereignly determined each of our days. In fact, not one hair will fall from your head apart from the will of the Father. So, what does it mean when the author of Hebrews says that Satan had the power of death? Well, to begin, we have to remember where death comes from in the first place. Death is not a reality created by Satan. It's a punishment given by God for man's sin. God de declared to Adam that if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would surely die, Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. But Satan, the great deceiver, saw death as an opportunity to try and interrupt God's good plan and to, to thwart his plan of perfection for creation. And so he comes in the form of Satan or, or, or of a serpent to, to tempt Eve to transgress that single law of God and then to plunge mankind underneath the curse and the penalty of death. Now, that was all under the, in, in accordance with God's sovereign ultimate plan for his creation, but he allowed it to take place. Since that time, the fear of death has plagued humanity. 
Apart from Christ, we live our lives under the shadow of the doom of coming death. And not just our physical death, but the reality of judgment for sin, which will then lead to what the Bible calls the second death, eternity separated from God and hell. Hell is eternal separation from God in which a person experiences forever the wrath of God for their sin. Satan, having successfully deceived Adam and Eve to sin, began to use the reality of the penalty of death like a tool in his hand to continue to tempt mankind into further depths of sin, fear, and despair. In that sense, the devil wields the power of death over fallen humanity like a weapon. He uses it like a thief would use a gun in a bank robbery. The bank robber walks into the bank with a loaded weapon, and he points that weapon at the clerk that has the keys to open the safe and tells them to do what he wants, go and get me the money. Now, under normal circumstances, that clerk would never think of opening the safe and giving the money to some stranger. And yet, when the robber produces a gun, that person immediately does what they're asked. Why? Because with the gun, the thief is using the power of death to coerce that person to do what they want. They're threatening their life and using that power then to manipulate them. Satan uses the power of death in much the same way to tempt fallen humanity into further levels of depravity, depression, fear, anxiety. The weapon of the fear of death is one of the primary ways, in fact, that Satan maintains control over the fallen world system. Ephesians 2 describes him as the prince of the power of the air. It talks about the fact that as unbelievers, we used to walk in lockstep with the prince of the power of the air. So just think about it for a moment. You'll see exactly how this happens in real life. The fear of death tempts fallen man towards two polar opposite extremes of rebellion against God. On the one hand, the fear of death produces in some what is known as hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophical idea that the end goal of life is personal human pleasure. The goal of life is to please yourself, hedonism says. The hedonist says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Get what you can get while the getting's good. That's the hedonist idea. The hedonist looks at the reality of death and says, if I can't escape death, then I need to please myself as much as possible while I have life. On the other side, the fear of death drives some to make idols out of their bodies and the pursuit of long life. They submit themselves to excessive exercise, excessive dieting, and they isolate themselves into sanitized environments to do all they can to ensure that they live a long, healthy life. For these people, the protection of their health and physical body becomes almost like a religion. And the truth is, Satan doesn't really care which avenue a person takes. He's just content to use the sword of the fear of death to ensure that fallen humanity remains and maintains their rebellion against a holy God. He just wants you to rebel. He doesn't care what that looks like. Just think about how much the fear of death is lurking behind the scenes, prodding the culture towards further levels of rebellion against God. The fear of death often drives the love of money. The fear of death drives the love of sinful pleasure. The fear of death drives the obsession over personal comfort. The fear of death drives the pursuit towards the fountain of youth. The fear of death even drives false religion. 
It drives some people to other forms, even harming their own bodies as a way of sort of doing penance to God to pay for their sins on their own by their own self-righteousness. The fear of death manifests itself in all of these ways. But what's, what is it the author of Hebrews has just said about Satan and his relationship to the power of death when it comes to the believer? Through his death, Jesus Christ rendered Satan powerless when it comes to the power over death. You understand what that means, Christian? When Jesus took the punishment of death on behalf of his children, the power of death over them was completely removed. By his death, Jesus satisfied God's wrath over sin on the cross, paying the penalty of death on our behalf. And by his resurrection, he ensured that his people will not eternally suffer the effects of physical death, but will themselves be resurrected unto glory, to have real bodies again in glory with Christ. So then by doing so, God has taken Satan's fully automatic rifle and turned it into a water pistol for the Christian. It's powerless. It's ineffective. That brings us to the second purpose of the death of Christ that the author mentions here. And that is, purpose number two, the freedom of God's children. Not only did he defeat Satan, stripping from him the power of death, but secondly, he brings freedom to God's children. Look back at the text in verse 15. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The death of Christ means that Satan's been stripped of his power, but for the Christian, it means complete freedom. Notice how he describes how our lives were before we were in Christ. He says that we were those who were subject to slavery because of the fear of death. Through fear of death, they were subject to slavery all their lives. We had no ability to please God. We were bound to sin Controlled and ruled by this fear of death. It's so common in our world today. When we were lost, the fear of death loomed over us like a dark cloud, a storm cloud that was ready to let loose at any moment. We were subject to the same temptations towards the pursuit of pleasure, towards worry and despair, towards the pursuit of our own health and happiness and idolatrous proportions, but not anymore. Don't you see, Christian, Jesus' death and resurrection did not just change your eternity, but it was meant to change your life in the present tense. Right now, the effects of the cross of Christ to change our day-to-day, to change the way we think, the way we live. It set us free from the fear of death, and that should change us. The fear of death drives us to the pursuit of self, the pursuit of pleasure, Accumulation of personal wealth and the idolatrous protection of personal health. But freedom from the fear of death leads us to lay down our lives, lay down our pursuits and possessions as those who are now living for the glory of another. While we certainly do not invite death, we do not fear death for ourselves or for our loved ones who are in Christ. Instead of accumulating possessions only for our personal benefit and enjoyment, suddenly we have this newfound desire to use the possessions God's given us for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom. We steward our health as good stewards of of what God has given us, 
But if the stewarding of my health comes into conflict with the commandment to serve God, then I'm happy to lay down my health and even my life if the two come into con- confliction. The Christian's been freed from slavery to the fear of death. That's why Paul would write those wonderful words that we read at the beginning of the service from Philippians chapter 1. Paul is in prison. The the options for him are either execution or freedom. And this is what he says in the face of those that seemingly rock in a hard place. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ To die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Remember, he's choosing between execution or life. And he says, I don't know which one I want to choose. Why? Verse 23, because I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Can you imagine being conflicted over whether or not you want to be executed or set free? And yet that's what Paul says. He says, you know, there's pros and cons here. I could go be with Jesus right now. Or if I stay, I'm just going to serve him until he takes me home. But everything was seen through the lens of Christ. That's what it looks like to be freed from the fear of death, from the power of death. To be conflicted. Over life and death, because you see the benefits of being with Christ, and you see the benefits of life, not as personal pleasure and personal pursuits, but pursuits to serve Christ as King. Both of those are good options. And Christian, that's to be our perspective of life and death. Jesus died that you would be free not only from sin's penalty, but of its power. But far too often, I fear that we as Christians continue to go around as those who have these chains that have now been broken, but we're living as if we're still tied down, still chained down to the fear of death. Too often, we still allow ourselves to be drawn into worldly pursuits that that were ours before we were in Christ. Too often, we live in terror over the thought of our own death or over the thought of the death of those who we love who are in Christ. Listen, when we live like like that, when we think that way, it evidences that we've not yet understood the true, full effects of the goodness of the gospel. The gospel is even better than you've imagined. It's better than you've ever dreamed because this life is not our best life, Christian. It's not. The best life is coming when we are with Christ. The best life for our loved ones who are Christians is yet to come. It's not here in this life. Don't get me wrong, this life is good. Many of the people and the things that we have in this life bring great joy. And we praise God for the relationships and the things God allows us to enjoy in this life. But listen, never confuse the value of this life with the value of the next for yourself or for the ones you love who are in Christ. I want to be clear that the Bible does not condemn Christians for grieving the death of loved ones in Christ. Death is a reality for us as believers, as we've said. But our perspective of death, including the way we grieve, should be radically different than the way the world responds to death. Let me show you how the Christian should think about death, again from the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, 
Listen to that. He's talking about Christians. He doesn't say those who are dead. Those who are asleep. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. No, he doesn't say that we wouldn't grieve. He says that you wouldn't grieve in the way that the world grieves as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Listen to verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. What Paul says in this passage is that it's not wrong to grieve for our loved ones in Christ who have passed away. But it's wrong for us to grieve as if we have no hope. That means our grieving should be different than the grief of the unbelieving world. Our grief is not a grief of desperation. It's a sadness over the temporary separation between us and those whom we love, but it's bolstered by joy and the great anticipation of the fact that in reality they're simply asleep, waiting for the day in which Christ will resurrect them to eternal life with eternal bodies. Let me encourage you, when you're tempted to despair either over the death of someone you love or over your own death, turn your mind to this passage. Force your mind to dwell here and think not on your loss, but on their gain. Understand, when a believer dies and goes to be with Christ in glory, even if they lived a wonderful life with wonderful people whom they deeply love to the greatest depths that a human can experience love, if God gave them the choice to come back or to stay with him, they would not come back, and neither would you. As good as this life can be, on your best day with the people you love the most, one moment with Christ is far better than anything we can experience in this life. Do you believe that? And may we live it. May we live it when death crouches at the door for us. May we live it when death crouches at the door for those we love. Remember that one day in the presence of Christ is better than eternity here doing the things I enjoy the most. He is better. Comfort one another with these words. He's coming again, and we'll be with him forever. Christians, let me encourage us as we close to turn our minds to two simple truths that we draw from this wonderful text. Number one, praise Christ for the incarnation. Praise Christ for the incarnation. Spend some time today giving glory to Christ for the fact that he willingly humbled himself and took on human flesh so that he might not only live in your place, but die in your place. Dwell on that. Think on that. Be affected by that. And listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, recognize that you're a sinner who deserves the just wrath of God. But God has graciously sent his perfect Savior who took on real humanity 
to live a perfect life and then to freely and willingly with joy offer that life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of all his people and then to rise again on the third day. And the scriptures are clear that today, if you will humble yourself in true repentance, turning from your sin to Christ in faith, believing that Christ and his life, death, and resurrection are your only hope of salvation, not your own righteousness or your own goodness, but only the goodness and sacrifice of Christ. If you will put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be adopted into God's family, given eternal life, and in this life, freed from the tyranny of death. Won't you come to him today? Bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation. But secondly, if you are in Christ, live in hope, not in fear. Live in hope, not in fear. Christian, don't live one more day under the tyranny of the fear of death. When you're tempted to fear death for yourself or your loved ones in Christ, turn your mind to the cross in the empty tomb. Death is no longer our enemy because Christ has conquered it. And for those loved ones who are not in Christ, may this hope drive you to share the gospel with them, to beg God for their forgiveness in prayer. But do not allow yourself to miss out on the blessing that Christ purchased for us of living a life dedicated unto him as long as he leaves us here, realizing that death is not the end, but the beginning of eternity with Christ. And may we add our voices to the voice of Paul and say with our full hearts, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer, it is our hope, it's our confession. We desire to live our lives as faithfully as possible, to serve you with all of our might, with all of our resources, But we confess that we long for the day when we will be with you. We know you're with us even now through your spirit. We love you. We long for the day when we'll see you face to face. God, help us to live a life that's emboldened by these truths. Help us not to fear the inevitability of our physical deaths, but to place our faith squarely and securely in Christ who says that for the believer it's merely falling asleep because the day's coming when you will bring us again to life through resurrection with a full glorified body that we can be with you forever and until that day every believer who dies spends that time immediately with you until you return we're so thankful for these truths may they comfort our hearts may we honor you We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.